You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment. I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out how important it is to have local market knowledge when you're buying property. If you look around the traps in Australia, generally, the number of investment properties in each state generally equates to investors in that state. But Queensland actually has many more investment properties than investors. And that's because so many people from interstate have been sucked into buying stuff from a nice brochure. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we're picking the brains of Pete Wargent. Originally a chartered accountant, Pete has also gained qualifications and experience in, among other things, financial planning and property investment. He's also co-founded a property buyer's agency with offices in Sydney, Brisbane and London. Now, Pete is probably best known for his unparalleled ability to deliver powerful data-driven market analysis and is regularly featured in the mainstream television and print media in Australia and internationally. Pete is highly sought after by international hedge funds, institutional and sophisticated investors, consulting for his monthly market reports and tactical insights. Now, I've been reading his daily insights now for some time, and I'm honoured that he's joined us today to talk about, I hope, several elephants in the room. Welcome, Pete. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate you being here, mate. Now, I I just want to let all our listeners know, I do think you have got Australia's best property blog, and this isn't the first time I've said that. What inspires you to actually every day to take the time, read everything that's happening, and then actually formulate a blog every day. Oh, I'm glad you said it. it's a good blog. I recently had an email from a group saying we've ranked your blog in something like the 95th best property blog in Australia or something. <laughs> and if I could please promote that on my social media, which uh, alas, I forgot to do. So um, yeah, I think it's one of those things. A lot of people come to me and say they're going to write a book and they're going to start a blog, uh, including my business partner in London, actually. And he, after about two years, he'd written one blog post. And I think that's a common thing. I think some people find writing difficult. Um, and I think for me, it's cathartic. I, I just like to get my ideas out there. And writing is just something that comes easily to me. Yeah. It's not just the writing, though. It's the way you put together data. And I find it fascinating at times. I see you obviously amalgamate or, or create graphs from a various sorts of data and look for correlations. I mean, you've obviously got a certain mind that I guess identifies what's important and what's relevant, and I'm fascinated by that. It's okay. You can call me a nerd if that's what you're thinking because that's uh, – <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you're right. I actually I do enjoy that process of just – when the when the news comes out and the figures come out, trying to find the story and piecing it together, it's just um, it's like a puzzle, and I do enjoy that process. Um, yeah, it does take a bit of time and, and effort, but um, yeah, I've, I've been doing it for some years and I've always enjoyed it. What I love about your blog is that you cover so many different topics, whether it's migration or population or developments, etc. Most of our listeners are going to be property investors. You know, what are some of the big bits of data that you really love and you think, wow, this is actually really important for property buyers? 
I think for me, the, the one thing that I've always found interesting and intriguing about real estate is just seeing demographic shifts and changes happening before your eyes. I mean, I suppose any industry can be as exciting or as boring as you make it. Yeah. Uh, but for me, um, you know, city person, born and bred, and I've just always enjoyed seeing cities evolve mm-hmm. and then the changes in demographics and so on. And quite fortunately in Australia's big capital cities, you can see all that stuff happening before your eyes. I mean, when I first came to Australia back in the 90s. Um, I was working around Mascot at the time, not a million miles from here. There are a few old weatherboard homes there at the time, but mostly it was just warehouses and the airport. Uh, you go back there today, the change has been phenomenal mm. at that time. So just watching these things uh, change and evolve, I've always found interesting. I think that's a really big point because you've been watching and reading for so long and you can actually see changes over a long period of time. So when you're thinking about the future, you can think, well, this is what's happened over the last, say, 20 years. You've got more of an expectation of what could happen in the future. But a lot of investors, for example, just seen what's happened in the last five years and then they think, well, that's what's going to happen in the next five years. I mean, what's your thoughts around, I kind of guess, familiarity and how investors deal with that? Yeah, it's one of the few advantages of being English, actually, is we've seen a lot of this stuff before. We've seen big booms and busts. Um, the UK economy um, has gone through big swings, booms and busts for decades, and uh, we've lived through several recessions. Well, you guys in Australia have uh, had it comparatively easy. But I think one of the things you learn having seen multiple cycles is that you know, it's very difficult for people to envisage when everything's going well. It's it's hard to even imagine uh, that that a property market could be struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people have very very short memories, and Sydney is a good case in point. Uh, you remember going to open homes in 2011, 12, and it would just be uh, an agent having a smoke on the balcony and nobody else. And then, <laughs> you know, come sort of the peak of the market, um, 2016, 17, and you, it's almost a stampede or a frenzy. Yeah. Um, and at, at each end of the spectrum, it's hard to imagine that it could ever be different. But of course, cycles always do repeat. I was working in the UK when the last crash happened, 2007 to 11. And it just got worse in 2008 and businesses shut down. It just kept on getting worse. I came back in 2011 thinking the world was going to end basically. Walked into Australia and we're in a mining boom and there's money <laughs> everywhere and everyone's happy and positive and I'm like, this is just a different world. Mm. And it's not just property. It's the same in all asset classes. So the commodity cycle, as you mentioned, same in the share markets Um, at the moment. I mean, looking at some of those tech stocks, you know, they're valuing everything going perfectly for for these companies like Tesla and Netflix um, forever. But of course, at some point that won't happen and there'll be a correction. And that is interesting you, you refer to that because a lot of property researchers and analysts only look at property. I'm guilty of that, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not an analyst though, but certainly it's my area of expertise and I've got sort of peripheral understanding that there are other investment classes out there, but beyond that, I don't have a lot of depth of knowledge, And but you do. Well, how do you see it all interlinked or is it? Yeah, I think it is interlinked because um, if, if you um, if you consider the um, the situation of an individual investor, when the returns from property are comparatively attractive to the share market, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and more and more investors come into the market and they start chasing the boom. But then at various points in time, the share market becomes comparatively cheap or there are changes in tax legislation that encourage a change. So Mm. that balance between where the money is flowing to is is important for the market dynamics. And I think from an individual's point of view, it also makes sense to try and have a balance because one one of the things with real estate 
is that because of the leverage that you use, you often find that people yeah. become very top heavy in their portfolios. And Chris, you'd know this as a financial planner. People have their own home and a couple of investment properties. It starts to make their super and their other investments look comparatively small. My view on it is, is that, you know, when you're in your thirties, forties, you know, you've got a big time frame till you say 70, 80, 90, you know, 30, 40 years. And if you're investing in, in an asset for 30 to 40 years, you know, because of leverage in property, it makes a lot of sense for younger people to look at property. Once people get to their 50s, 60s, you know, your time frame is much shorter and the leverage, you know, may or may not work as good. And so generally speaking, on your 30s, 40s, you know, you, I guess it's looking at, you know, getting a good property, but at some point you're going to cap out and you're going to stop. And, um, you know, that's when the other asset classes really should come in. And I totally agree. I think a question that I've been getting an awful lot in the last couple of years, and I'm sure the same for you, Chris, is that a lot of people can see how property can build equity for them, but they just can't visualize the end game. I mean, how mm -hmm. are they going to turn this mm -hmm. property portfolio into cash flow? Uh, because by the time you've accounted for repairs and property management, and vacancies and other bits and pieces and rates and land taxes, that the cash flow from residential property is usually pretty weak. <laughs> um, so, you know, what, what I try to get people to think about is that while the uh, the property market is a really good way to build equity, um, there are much more efficient ways um, to get a tax efficient cash flow for the end game. But the most important thing, of course, is to build that asset base in the first place. So you've got the choices. Which is Back to that idea about investors fuel booms and that, you know, invested dollars are, are chasing wherever they see growth and, and property obviously being a long-term investment versus shares, which are much more liquid you can get in and out of. You know, I, I always worry about people sort of making a decision of shares or property in that context. Obviously, in terms of where you are in your lifespan, where you are in terms of whether you're in asset accumulation or where you're looking at cash flow, I always worry about people buying property for cash flow. I really do. I don't know what your attitude towards that is. Uh, look, I suppose it depends. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. It depends on the stage of life that you're at. Um, yeah. So, for example, just um, a personal anecdote, I'm currently looking at buying a property for its cash flow. But the thing with um, residential real estate, you only you generally find where, where the yields are very high, that yield usually represents a cost or a risk of some sort. Mm. Um, so the types of property... In, uh, in the UK where you can maybe achieve a 15% gross yield, it's usually a niche sector of some sort. So in Britain, it's houses of multiple occupancy. So you, mm -hmm. you rent out the house by the bedroom. Uh, but of course, that comes at a, at a cost and the cost is very intensive property management. You get damage, you get vacancies, uh, you got a massive turnover of, uh, of tenants. So you might find that the net yield might be closer to 10%. And then you've got to put a cost on the headaches and the stress. So, mm. um, yeah. And then you, I mean the cost of potentially a capital fall in that asset if it's not as mm. good. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, I, I think that type of property only works in a, within a, sort of a 1K radius of a train station, city centre, yep. usually a terraced house in the UK. Look, yep. It's different in different markets. In, in Australia, the it was... Boarding houses. Yes, <laughs> and there, there was a big thing with mining towns for a period of time, but what people never sort of disclose is that high yields usually, in, in any asset class, the high yield represents a risk of some sort. So... If you buy um, a government bond in a country where the yield is 15%, that, that's 15% for a reason. There's a chance that you might not get your money back. Um, it's the same yeah, with I property. Mean, I, I, think, yeah, well, I think one of the easiest ways I explain it to clients is if someone's paying, say, a 6% yield or a 7% yield, that means they're willing to pay a lot of money to rent the place. 
but then they're not willing to pay a lot of money to buy the place. Or not able to. Yeah, or mm. not able to, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, what you're finding is, and that usually comes down to two reasons, you know, the, the people who want to buy it aren't earning much income, for example. They can only afford to rent it. And so what you find is is that there's no one really wanting to buy it. Just everyone wants to rent it. Yeah, and- that's right. And they end up, those types of properties become marketed specifically to investors, yep. which can at various points in the cycle can be a very thin market mm. or in some sectors like commodities, you might not find a buyer at all for, for years or decades. So you've got to know what you're doing and it's um, you've got to buy something where there's a sustainable market. Yeah. Yeah. And the biggest hit with it all <laughs> is even if it works and even if you do make $10,000 a year positive cash flow, if you're still working and that's where your lifestyle comes in, you're going to have to add it to your taxable income. And generally speaking, you're probably to be able to buy property, you're probably going to be earning a reasonable income. And so you're probably going to be paying 40, 50% tax anyway. So yeah, look, there's better ways to make a cash flow in this country. Say, yeah, um, there must be easier ways to do it. Better and easier ways. I mean, we've got uh, two good things in Australia. We've got strong dividend payout ratios yeah. compared to the MSCI Global Index. So in other words, companies pay out a big chunk of their profits to individual investors. We also have franking credits for companies that have paid tax on their profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very favorable environment for investing for cash flow. So why people would seek out sort of $10 a week in real estate, which, <laughs> you know, and even then it's not guaranteed. You see people mm. put together these um, spreadsheets and it looks like they can eke out a cash flow from a property, but then there's an unforeseen vacancy or yeah. a repair or something doesn't work as expected. Residential real estate in this country is not a cash flow asset. And generally speaking, the way that it actually looks positive is when they add in the, the depreciation benefits, which is really just bringing forward future tax that you have to pay more capital gains tax. So it's really not making you much money at all. That yeah. does lead us a little bit into um, the Brisbane conversation, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> because it seems to be that there's a lot of new stock being built still in Brisbane and marketed to investors and heavily on that depreciation side of things. And particularly if the if we get a Labor government and you know, more changes to depreciation. And we've even already got a situation with depreciation. We've got a two-tiered market that new is more attractive to investors to buy, but they're forgetting that there's no secondary market potentially for that property. What's happening in Brisbane at the moment? Brisbane is actually, to some extent, rebalancing. So the new construction and new commencements have really slowed down. Um, So you do find that over time, particularly in the capital city markets, they tend to rebalance themselves. So we've got more people uh, migrating from, particularly from Sydney up to southeast Queensland. So that's helping to fill up those apartments. There are some some developments that are still struggling, and the ones are, as you mentioned, they're the ones that are specifically built for investors with rental guarantees. Yep. You see the big banners on the side of the the projects. I'm not going to name any names, but um, yeah, if you look at the higher quality apartment stock, so uh, the sort of the Mervac developments, um, the, I can see with my own eyes, they're 100% occupied now. You can see there's mm. two years ago, they were all coming online. Now you can see on every balcony, there's furniture, they're busy, the lights are on. The developments that are struggling are those that have been marketed to super funds, Chinese investors, yep. interstate investors. Um they people use the rental guarantee for the first couple of years, and then the arsen falls out of the market at the end of that period. And yeah. um, those are the, they're just a trap for investors, and people lose money on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're renting them. They've got tenants in them, which is fine because it's a nice, beautiful development. And you know, there's lots of young 
couples and even families. I've got a client that left, you know, rented their house out for fifteen hundred dollars a week in Brisbane, in Hawthorne, and moved into a nice shiny apartment for six hundred bucks a week because they've got no kids. Walk to work, so there's the ability to rent them. It's just the capital values on those type of properties are are competing with all the other supply, really, aren't they? Yeah, and if you look over a decade, I mean, people talk about housing bubbles and affordability. Well, look at apartment prices in Brisbane are lower than they were ten years ago. So, you know, I'm sure locally people don't know what all the fuss is about. But Um, I mean, Brisbane's not all about apartments, right? So, you know, when we step away from the apartments, you mentioned there about the investor market. Another place near Brisbane where some famous I guess they call themselves buyers agents, go mm. and invest in areas like Logan and they get people to buy 40 cash in the city in Brisbane. What's your thoughts on that type of investing? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's in a similar vein to what we already talked about. Um, you can you can very easily find a 7% yield in those kind of areas. And actually, um, you know, it's interesting because Brisbane's not a mature housing market like um, London or some of the other big global cities. And it's really all about for... Homeowners, the inner 10K, everyone wants to be close to the city. Uh, the interesting thing with the Logan Joe is not actually that far from Brisbane. So um, arguably over a longer time frame, it might do reasonably well. The question mark for me is, well, how much do you want those headaches? Because um, you know, <laughs> those high yields often come with more difficult tenants, uh, late payments, all of that kind of thing. It's a different socio-demographic mix. And yeah, you've got to have a bit more tolerance for that kind of thing. And a lot of people don't even realise that that's the price you're going to pay, you know, or they don't realise that's a consequence of, of different areas. But you mentioned earlier about particular developments targeted at interstate investors. So is that sort of a really conscious thing, do you think? That- oh, yeah, it's a classic. The White Shoe Brigade in Queensland, it's a well-known thing. In fact, uh, interestingly, when you drill into the stats, um, I've, I've done some research with a group called RiskWise, and we, oh, yes. we recently wrote a report on the negative gearing changes um, that are proposed. Uh, but one of the interesting stats that we pulled out uh, from that report was that if you look around the traps in Australia, generally, the number of investment properties in each state generally equates to the investors in that state. But Queensland actually has many more investment properties than investors. And that's mm. because so many people from interstate have been sucked into buying stuff from a nice brochure. Uh, it looks good on paper, but yeah, a lot of stuff in Queensland is owned by people down south and That's, partly because yeah. of the Gold Coast and holiday homes yeah, yeah. and all of that kind of thing. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't actually thought about, you know, where, I, well, I know that that uh, a lot of southern state investors have been looking at Brisbane. I've had anecdotal conversations, you know, with many, many people. Oh, it's affordable. And I keep saying, well, affordable and investment don't necessarily equate to the same thing. But I also know, I, I've spoken to a number of buyers agents in Brisbane, for instance, who are all they're whinging about the, the buyers agents from the southern states coming up as well. So it's not only the buyers themselves that are being sucked in, it's actually the buyers agents that are being sucked in. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say sucked in. It's, I mean, it, the thing is, um, a lot of the the uh, stuff that's marketed to investors, uh, so Gold Coast, there's a lot of stuff that yeah. always happens there. It's a real boom-bust cycle. Mm. Uh, but that said, there are some very good investment opportunities in Brisbane. And if you're looking at point in the cycle at which to buy, um, arguably, after a rough few years after the floods and so on, you can find good relatively good yields um, and good investment opportunities. But the thing in Brisbane is the scarce commodity is the land, the, mm. the land that's close to the city where people want to live. So if you're going to do it, I wouldn't be looking at high-rise apartments or um, or just generally anything that's marketed to investors. So house and yeah. land packages, 
you really want to buy stuff where there's an owner-occupier market. So the types of places, just to give you examples, where we buy, it's the inner west of Brisbane, for example. Um, so suburbs like Indrapilly and Tawong and Turinga. There's some great school catchments, great connectivity to the city. You're talking sort of five or six k's out. But the types of stuff we look to buy is, is Queenslanders that are close to their use-by dates, so they can be rented out today. But the real value is in raising those properties up and turning them into executive homes, sort of the five-bed, three-bath properties. Because if you do that type of property well, with careful planning and execution, I mean, you could almost name your own price for that type of property, yeah. and yeah. particularly people moving up from the southern states, and they sell a lot of value in that upgrader market. Yes. That, that's the real gentrification piece too, isn't it? As those areas are obviously becoming much more in demand and the scarcity of the land, then, yeah, people want to live closer to where they work and where the, the, it's, the neighbourhoods are and the lifestyle and that sort of stuff. It's the same sort of thing. So you're seeing that same sort of movement because that's what's happened in Sydney and Melbourne, really. I mean, we haven't been jacking up Queenslanders on stilts and <laughs> doubling the size of the house, but not in the same way. But it's the same principle, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, there's certain school catchments that you want to yeah. be in. Mm. Uh, that's, be, mm. you know, historically, uh, Brisbane's not a dense city, so that wasn't such a big thing. But increasingly, uh, as more and more people come into the inner suburbs because of the apartment construction, there's more demand for, uh, particularly for those state high schools. Um, so there's certain school catchments where um, house prices are outperforming. And but it, yeah, it, it comes down to the the family appropriate type yeah. of stock. That's the thing because mm. that's still the biggest buying demographic in Brisbane, um, and it's where there's a scarcity of good quality assets. That you know, if you deliver the right type of property and you get competition, uh, there was a, there was an auction the other day in Gordon Park, which is a you know pretty good suburb, five or six k's out, and there was more than two hundred people at the auction. Wow. Um, yeah. And the the big thing at the moment is this Hampton style, which. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but yeah, it's amazing. You see the um, the, the amount that people are prepared to pay for yep. that type of property. So, <laughs> but Brisbane's a very patchy market. I think more than any other mm. capital city, we've got flood zones, yeah, loads of high rise <laughs> apartments. Yeah, there's a lot of decrepit old housing stock with spiders underneath, and all of that kind of Queensland style property. So, yep. yeah, the median price growth doesn't often reflect. The good and the bad, because there's plenty of it. Mate, yeah. there were so many good little point snippets for Fantastic. buyers in that. So firstly, the family orientated, you know, a property that suits a family. Mm. And then obviously a higher income family. You're turning a property that doesn't really suit a higher income family to one by the renovation to the exec mm. style. So the double incomes. You're also hitting their emotion. You know, the family, young family market on higher incomes are the ones with the biggest problem and the ones that prioritise living as close to the city as possible. So, you know, they've got the biggest borrowing capacity and they've also got the biggest emotion pool. And so that's where you're going to always see, you know, the highest prices. And you talked about flood zones there as well. That's another thing where people go with Brisbane. They oh, I can't invest in Brisbane. There's floods there. Well, it doesn't flood everywhere, does it? You know, um, it only floods in, you know, certain <laughs> valleys and gullies and you can avoid those things. Just talks about how important it is to get a good buyer's agent, you know, when you're investing in a city that you don't know. You can't just rock up and know all these things, you know, and I think that's my worry when I see other buyers agents, all of a sudden I'm a Sydney or a Melbourne buyers agent, now all of a sudden I'm, I'm buying in Brisbane, you well, know. Well, it's something that I I learned doing the show, you know, filming for location, 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 so many syllables in that word, in that um, title, that you have to take your Sydney glasses off or your Melbourne glasses off or your Adelaide glasses off or wherever you're from, you have to take those glasses off and look at a market as a local looks at that market. 
And I think you mentioned something about the owner occupiers and that sort of fundamental demand is really what underpins sustainable growth. Would you agree? Yeah, you touched on a really good point there. The, it's one of the the classic things that you get in Brisbane is that people go, oh, well, if this property was in Sydney, then it would be worth X. <laughs> it's the most pointless comparison. I mean, it, it's relevant to the extent that, yes, there's a ratio of Sydney to Brisbane house prices and it's up and down and it, it recently just came off a record high. So it's mm. relevant to that extent. But the the reality is Brisbane is is not Sydney and it's a very different market. And as you said, it's really about what locals are prepared to and can mm. afford to pay. So and what uh, they want to buy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's not. Uh, and uh, Brisbane is a less mature housing market. So very few, comparatively very few apartments historically. And we've suddenly gone from almost no apartments mm. to lots of apartments. Um, yeah. And the demand just hasn't kept up. So um, yeah. It is interesting to know though, like, you know, when you do say in Sydney this would cost because those houses in, in Brisbane that you're talking about, I imagine they're what, mid-sevens or rich, yeah? Yeah, so I think if you're looking just to give people an idea, I suppose that um, it depends on the suburb. So but in a six to seven or eight K from the city, anywhere from mid-sixes up to mid-eights, uh, yeah. but for a really good block of land, something that's good enough to be rented out in its current state. But yeah, the end product well, name your price. It could be mid ones. It could be two. Yeah. Uh, so there's there is loads of upside, but it needs a lot of careful planning and mm. execution. Mm. Yes, that that is interesting. I mean, we are going to be interviewing an architect in a few weeks, and we're going to be talking about the decision making processes that buyers need to go through before they buy, with a view to improving that property and the advice that they need before doing that, because. He is telling me that the amount of people that come to him, I bought a property to renovate as an investment and they haven't actually done any due diligence. Shocking, scary. Yeah, and you well, you already mentioned people who are not familiar with the rules um, in Queensland. Well, it's a different buying process for one thing, uh, but also yeah, Brisbane City Council put out its 2014 city plan, which changed the zoning for a whole range of uh, suburbs and streets. So there are now more low-medium density zones which it, where you can remove post-war housing and put townhouses or units up. Yeah, I mean, the same applies even if you're just renovating a house. You need to know what can and can't be done. Pre-war housing in Brisbane is often protected, character protected. Post-war housing, you can there's usually more scope to do something with it, but not always. Brisbane City Council has a really good helpline where you can actually get some free advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you go, you know, you talk about people not doing their due diligence, it's amazing uh, what you see people do. And then they get the buyer's remorse, you know, a week after they've purchased mm-hmm. or sometime sooner. Too late. Is there many suburbs in Brisbane which are basically completely full of lots of pre war housing and basically heritage overlay on them? Yeah, so there are in fact certain streets where you get character overlay and those areas are popular because that character will always be maintained. Mm. There's some beautiful streets in suburbs like Cooparoo, really close to the city. The Queenslander style will be maintained. Mm -hmm. I suppose the nature of being in an inner city, you're always somewhere close to a low-medium density zone. And in Brisbane, you're always close to a highway somewhere. But yeah, there are certain pockets, and this is where local knowledge helps, certain pockets where that character is protected. You know, people think, you know, Sydney's like Brisbane and they go, well, no, there's 2 million odd in Brisbane. There's 5 million-ish in Sydney. There's a big difference in population. And then you talk about the, the transport in Brisbane around freeways. It's it's definitely a better city to get around in terms of their freeways. You know, they've thought it through a bit more. 
you know. So I don't know. No, I've been stuck in traffic in Brisbane. <laughs> what do you think, Pete? Uh, yeah, look, it's getting it's getting more dense. So um, I think um, you know something when Chris and I presented last year, we talked about is when when cities globally have historically reached around about five million. You suddenly see all this media about oh, you can't get around in a car anymore, and the infrastructure doesn't work, and and Sydney's just going through that right mm, now with the, with the light rail. I mean, Brisbane is a long, long way behind on that curve. You know, officially the population might be two and a half million, but that incorporates Ipswich and Logan and Moreton Bay. The, the, the actual, the main city of Brisbane, you know, the Brisbane City Council in the suburbs is much, much smaller. So um, comparatively speaking, you can drive around the city much more easily. Do you include the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast? Because, you know, one of the things in Sydney is, People would prefer to live in the inner ring of Sydney than live in the central coast or Wollongong, you know, because Some. of the majority, <laughs> uh, majority. Because Someone of the, who insult our central coast. Yeah, no, and Wollongong, we love you and great places. <laughs> but generally speaking, just because of the commute, you know. And it's, if they're it's, working in the city, absolutely. Yeah, and they're working yeah. in the city. Mm. But in Melbourne, the same thing, you know, I'd much rather live in the inner ring of Melbourne than live in Geelong or even down the Mornington Peninsula because mm. of the commute. In Brisbane, though, I kind of find that it's a bit different. People sometimes prefer to live in Noosa or live in the Gold Coast and commute to the city. Is that really a kind of fair analogy? Well, yes, because Brisbane doesn't have beaches if you if you discount the South Bank. So I tend to think of as an economic hub. I think of southeast Queensland. I don't just think of Brisbane. Mm. Uh, so you're really talking about from Noosa right down to the Tweed. I mean, this is one of the things where you got this bullshit analysis of jobs growth and people say, oh, Brisbane hasn't had any jobs growth. But, of course, the jobs figures are based upon where people live, not where they work. Right. Um, so the Gold Coast is relatively commutable. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would be fair to say anywhere from sort of Malulabar North would be stretching it because you'd be spending an hour and a half in the car. Yeah. Uh, but it does, it's nevertheless is the case that a lot of people live outside of Greater Brisbane and they do have jobs that are in Brisbane. So um, so you kind of have three hubs, right? So you have Gold Coast is one hub, Sunshine Coast is another hub, and then Brisbane's another hub. And in the middle, you've got kind of this little area that's a bit of a no man's land I think that, you know, where people don't really, they're only kind of living there because of affordability. You know, they're not living there by choice because Mm. it's, you know, and so whereas in Sydney, it's not really that problem. You know, people want to just live close to the city, you know, and they're not prioritised commuting as much. And I think that has a big impact on the Brisbane market, I think. Yeah, Yeah. and I think, um, yeah, some of those suburbs you already mentioned around the Logan Shire, lots of sort of very high immigrant population. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just different. It's a lower sociodemographic mix. But, Mm. I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm so optimistic for southeast Queensland over a 10, 20, 30-year time horizon. I mean, Sydney and Melbourne are the two economic powerhouses. That's clearly the case. That's where all the big head offices are, the big employers. They're the outward-facing global cities. Um, Perth is a cyclical commodities driven city, but Southeast Queensland is the, it's really the third choice for people who want a a combination of affordability, lifestyle, uh, lots of retirees, um, but lots of people who are just using their equity to move away from the Southern states. And that tends to go in a cycle too. It was a big thing after the Olympics when Sydney had its big boom, lots of people moving up to Queensland. Um, the mining boom is just hitting its straps. Um, so we're just starting to see that now again, a lot of people moving up. Um, but we could do with some more big head offices, in my opinion. 
Also, it's more connected. So if you are moving from Sydney and Melbourne, you're not you're not really isolating yourself from your family in terms of time zones and distance. Oh, 100%. The same you are to, you, yeah. you are if you move to Perth. Oh, look, I've had this. My younger brother used to live in Perth. I had the same thought process myself. I'd love to go and live there one day. Uh, but the reality is, yeah, it might be closer to London now with the direct flights, <laughs> but it's a bloody long way from Sydney and, and uh, Melbourne. And mm. that's a nice thing. I mean, I'll pop up to uh, Brisbane tonight. You know, it's, a, it's an hour on the plane. Um, you it's know, easier to live in New Zealand than uh, than Perth. Yeah, that's right. And uh, <laughs> you know, Perth is uh, closer to Bali and all the rest of it. I think yeah. it's um, and the thing is with Perth is it's a highly cyclical place. So mm. when you know we might see a lithium boom, for example, yeah. or a, a, a sort of a, a commodities echo boom, as a lot of the um, the projects need reinvestment. Um, but it's it's a less um, a sort of consistent and sustainable type of economy, then uh, Queensland has a, a few more strings to its bow. So there's there's the mining, but there's also tourism. There's also uh, banking, insurance, financial services. Yeah, I'm sure Perth will have its heyday again, you know, and I'm sure, you know, in, we come back in 2050, I'm sure the population in Perth will rise, you know, just like, you know, the other capital cities. And I think it'll, you know, do really well. Have you thought about much where, you know, I was chatting to my mum, you know, last year and, now, where do you want to live when you're older, Mum? You know, you haven't spoken you... to your mum in a year, Chris. That's terrible. <laughs> I thought I was bad. <laughs> no, I was trying to, you know, bring in my life work into family life and asking her, and you know, where, where do you want to end up? And she said something really interesting to me, and it, it it made me think about things a bit differently. She says, "Oh, we just want to go a bit further north because it's getting a bit cold." And so, as people where get is she older, as is in Newcastle, right? And um, you know, as people get older, they don't want the cold; they want a bit of heat. And so, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that's, it's, it's true. And, and so yeah. a lot of people who are downsizing, they don't want to, you know, in their live in Sydney or they live in Melbourne, they naturally, they're thinking Southeast Queensland. Oh, it's, a known, it's a known demographic yeah. um, phenomenon. I had a client last year who, he was 95 and he was, um, he moved up to Brisbane with his wife and he told me that so, some of his friends had died so young they hadn't even moved to Queensland yet, which uh, <laughs> which uh, made me chuckle. But, yeah, it's a, it's a well-known thing for downsizers. Yeah. Interesting thing I found with that was trying to find a ground floor low-maintenance apartment with no steps in the whole development, mm. somewhere close to the water. Mm. It's a very, very tricky thing to yeah. find. So when people talk about apartment scarcity, have a think about that because we've got a – the downsizing yep. baby boomer, um, a great wave of those um, coming into the picture and just, very few developments that are built that way. Really noticed the same thing in Sydney too when we've had, had older clients who really don't want to go into, into a nursing home or, you know, are over 55 living and regular apartment buildings, you know, they'll have lifts in there but there's three steps from the garage to the lift. Or, I mean, and that won't affect most people but if they are thinking they're in their late 70s or 80s or 90s even, I haven't had a client in their 90s, but I've had a few in their 80s. And, you know, they, they are really thinking about that. Well, what if I'm, I'm on, a, on a walker or something and I just can't manage those three steps to the lift? Well, and- I'm sure you've been to auctions on the lower North Shore where you see that ground floor apartment mm. and uh, somebody will turn up with their parents and they'll literally bid to the bitter end to buy the right property. Yeah. Um, so it shows, um, yeah, it's, it's happening already. Yeah. And I'm sure it's only going to become more of a thing. One of the things in terms of demographics with, with average age in areas, I mean, it's often that if their average age is sort of 60 plus, it's not necessarily somewhere that yeah. you look at for price growth though, is it? Oh, well, yeah. So there's there are certain economies that are, are 
driven by uh, tourism and retirement and things like that where yes it, th- those are not the high income earning yep. you know chris um, talks about before though, the, the the types of markets we often see uh price growth is that aspirational upgrader market if you you know, people talk about median price growth, but you don't buy the market, you're buying individual properties. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's why you know, we try to find those areas where people on two incomes, you know, they're quite often two young professionals uh, about to start a family or, or just done so. And those are the types of areas where you see the price growth, particularly where there's gentrification as well. You know, a lot of money, I think, you know, out of the Sydney homes and the Melbourne homes, a lot of that money is going to flow somewhere. And that's going to flow potentially into downsizer apartments, which are kind of mm. got really nice views, you know, in Sydney around the harbour. And um, size. Yeah, you know. big, big. Mm. And, you know, one thing I think is going to happen as well is a lot of these terraces are going to get lifts installed because the cost of lifts has actually come mm. down a lot. And so, you know, anyone with a three-storey beautiful terrace will just get a lift put in and, you know, maybe cost 50 grand and we can stay mm. here till we're in our 70s, 80s. All our friends are in the neighbourhood. Um, but, I mean, I think that's <laughs> going to happen in Brisbane and, you know, the you know, Noosa and things like that, a lot of that money is going to shift up there as well, which is, you know, something for, for investors to think about. Oh, 100%. And uh, it, it always makes me laugh when you, you see these pieces come out and say, oh, there's no money to be made in housing. And it's like, well, there's $5.5 trillion of equity just sitting around mm-hmm. there. You know, if I can't pick one suburb and one property, it's time to give the game away, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. $7 trillion or something our property market's worth, exactly. which is compared to our share markets, probably like, Three to four times. So. I think we you mentioned earlier about oh we've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation about the difference between investors pushing prices up versus owner occupiers pushing prices up, and there's all these talk about prices falling now. Are, are, in your experience, are they falling everywhere? Uh, depends in Sydney or elsewhere. I think in Sydney, Sydney it seems to be generally citywide. I think some areas are, are struggling more than others. The Hills District has got a high level of stock on the market, uh, southwestern Sydney as well. Uh, Brisbane, still seeing some moderate price growth in some markets. Um, I think um, yeah, one of the interesting things that came out of that risk-wise research was that, I, mean, I guess we've always had this sort of um, feeling, if you like, that investors somehow drive cycles. But they actually did some really good empirical research to show the, particularly over the last 20 years, the link between investor finance um, and dwelling price growth and auction clearance rates, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. And there's a very close correlation now. Mm. Um, So what we're finding is that investors, is such a big chunk of the market these days that uh, through recessions or booms, it's investor sentiment is actually also impacting the home buyer sentiment. Yes, um, yeah. So it's um, it's it's essentially investors amplifying the cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because home buyers are buying at the same time as the investors are buying, and it's just kind of this torpedo up the market. Each mm. other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the yeah. other way, and that's why I feel like a lot of people are like now in Sydney is a lot of home buyers are getting nervous. Yeah, it's for a social sure. proof thing, isn't it? Mm. They're looking around and go, oh, no one's buying. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, great opportunity I, for an owner-occupier. That's right. 2018 is much better than, say, 2017, 16, maybe 15 to buy because, you know, there's nowhere near as much competition. And, you know, the cashed-up down or the cashed-up retiree or, you know, maybe they're still there, but, you know, they're not investing if they're a baby boomer and they're they're, they're competing buying the houses that their kids want to own, you know? No, this is the really interesting thing. There's so many commentators out there trying to second guess what mm. happens next. Well, um, Sydney, over the past 12 months, the median dwelling price is, is about 5% lower. Well, the, the longest and the biggest downturn we've had across, what, 40 years of available figures 
uh, was through that period, the early 90s recession. So we had extremely high mortgage rates. And then we had a 28 period, 28 month period of uh, falling prices, about 11 and a half percent. So to see a bigger downturn than that in a period of record low cash rates, mm-hmm. um, I think, um, yeah, that w- we would have to see another year of falling prices. Um, but it, the the thing about this cycle is that it's completely completely unique, and nobody really knows mm. what's going to happen because we've never seen such a big volume of interest only loans being pushed across onto mm. principal and interest. So mm-hmm. That's going to suck some of the energy out of the market. Um, but policymakers and regulators, you know, they're watching this very closely. But they even they don't know what's going to happen. Well, so we created it. Yeah, that's right. So it, <laughs> uh, they're watching. I think to mm. date they would be quite happy. I think mm. uh, you know a, a gradual deflation of yep. of prices. But um, if it starts to become a bit more messy, then you might see some easing back. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean the RBA actually said those like those words yesterday. They said that we're very happy with the price decline. We're very happy that prices have fallen 5% because, mm. you know, that's exactly what they wanted to do is slow down lending. But, you know, there's there's a number of things in that though. You talk about the Sydney median price. Mm. Well, how many properties sell in Sydney in a year? I mean, I wouldn't even hazard a guess. It's thousands and thousands of thousands. Yeah, 5%. Yeah. So if everyone's bailing out of high-end properties, the median, you know, goes up and if everyone's bailing out a low-end properties median goes down so a lot of it depends on the composition of that you know that yeah. actual sold stock well they had a stab in their in their monetary policy uh, minutes uh, yesterday it sort of said well it seems to be mainly at the top end that prices have fallen uh, but I suppose playing devil's advocate, well, if the median price has fallen by 5%, then the price of a median dwelling has fallen 5%. They can mm. uh, talk mm. about different subsectors. Um, I, but I think one of the interesting things I've taken away from a lot of the research I've been doing in recent, the last couple of years, is that nobody really knows how this cycle is going to play mm. out. Mm. Clearly, investor credit has been crimped and borrowing capacity has been cut for a lot of investors. Um, so there's no backstop in the market, and I think the the uh, the, the properties that will do well it's where there's owner occupied yep. credit, where yep. there's demand for housing. I think if you've bought some investment stock in inverted commas, yep. there's well there's nobody covering your downside there, so it's it's worrying for people who well, bought that right. type I of just property. Think they're doing everything they can to kill the investor market. So hopefully they can get to the next election and not have to get rid of negative gearing, mm. you know. And so we want to basically mm. cut the conversation out off by, you know, doing everything we can to harm investors and turn investors off by cutting their credit, depreciation, holidays to go look at property, etc. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that's why you probably well, own property in London. <laughs> that's yeah. a good thing, really. I mean, there, there's certain good impacts to that. It might yeah. if it stops people thinking that the Gold Coast might be a great place to invest because they get to tax deduct their annual holiday, then you know that's not a bad thing. I think it was a sensible change. <laughs> yes. I mean, um, no, I'm by no means a, a speak on behalf of Scott Morrison, but I think what what the coalition would say is that they're taking a chisel to the market and they're just t- taking off some of yeah. these excesses. Uh, just winding back, they've made some changes to depreciation, travel expenses. Uh, APRA's done its bit, um, but the thing is, um, with the proposed labour policies, well, it's it's a kind of strap yourself in because yeah. there's no coming back if you if you change capital gains tax and negative gearing. So uh, well, there is in the eighties they came back. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, unless actually, you didn't on CGT, but they did on. Uh, uh, unless you actually reverse the legislation, yeah. but that would be an absolute quagmire. <laughs> so um, yeah, hopefully they do that with Brexit. Oh, well, goodness me, don't even uh, go down that. Uh, that'll be a whole other podcast. Now, research, um, I I love your research, but not all research is equal. How does 
you know, property research, you know, in your view, you know, because a lot of developers use research, you know, and it's not so much research, is it? It's kind of sales, kind of, you know, marketing, you know, have you seen a lot of that and, you know, what's your thoughts? Yeah, it depends from whose perspective. I think uh, a lot of my clients, I, I write reports for fund managers. They're looking at different things to an individual who's looking to buy a property. Uh, I think um, you, it's often overlooked just how much you can learn from using your eyes and ears in the mm. real estate markets as an individual. Just get out there, see what's selling, see what isn't, you know, see what's not renting and, see, and what is renting um, and just using some sort of common sense, uh, I think, for an individual's perspective. I think if you're interested in macro factors and, you know, what's going to happen to developer share prices and bank share prices, well, that's where you start looking at some of the bigger picture stuff. But, I mean, I guess I just the point I'm trying to hopefully make is that, you know, not all research equal, is oh, equal. Oh, look, and- yes, I guess, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Well, yeah, you've just got to follow the money. How are people getting paid? Because there are people out there uh, that call themselves investment advisors um, but they're not giving you advice um, that benefits you. They're giving advice that benefits themselves. So what mm-hmm. they're essentially trying to do is sell you a property yep. and they're not actually giving you independence advice. And, um, and Yeah, and that big, nice, glossy, nine-page you know, research isn't so much research. It's oh, of course research no. to it's just been... support selling what they want to sell. And, you know, I guess it's it's just one of the common mistakes I see buyers sometimes make. Yeah, and the one that I don't care about calling people out for that because they don't care about the outcome for their for the yeah. people that buy those properties. And it's an illiquid asset class. Um, yeah. Gladstone was a classic at the very peak of the cycle, 2012 and beyond. Even in 2013, there was people trying to recommend these apartments in Gladstone CBD, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> You know, and you look, you know, five or six years on, uh, you know, people can't rent them, can't sell them, and it, it ruins people's, you know, oh, 100%. It ruins people's lives. Oh, it's they, tragic. Um, and that's why, you know, it's amazing you talk about mistakes that people make, but um, you've just got to think where is their sustainable home buyer demand? Yeah. Not, exactly. uh, don't get sucked into the latest big thing, um, the latest fad. And that, look, I keep saying this, and we have to do an entire podcast. I think we need to get a psychologist in and find out why it is that we want to be sold to. Why are we so drawn to this this you know pot of gold and this this magical fast track to uh, to wealth? Certainly, there's one aspect of the uh, psychology of money is that uh, you see the superannuation industry does this very well. Is that if you give your money to a fund manager to manage, it's somebody else's responsibility. Yeah. Mm. So if it all stuffs up, then it's not your fault. Uh, but the thing is with superannuation, it's still your money. That's the thing. Always yeah. your, it's always your self-responsibility. And I it's, think in real well, estate, I mean, I'm sure you've had clients come to you and they say, right, can you forecast me the capital growth for the next 35 yeah. years? And you say, well, I can, but it's just a number I'm plucking out of thin air because <laughs> nobody can project what's going to happen in 30 years' time. Yeah. Uh, but they're looking to pass that responsibility on to somebody else. Um, yeah. well, and I think it's the same in all asset classes. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think, too, that a lot of people, they, you know, when you point it out to them, they go, oh, yeah, of course, how could you possibly yeah, predict right. it? And But it's there is a lot of misinformation out there and false promises out there that, co- that cause that sense of thinking in people's minds in the first place. So what I always say is that what we've got to do is find the type of asset that is going to do better than everything else. You talk about the median being just that that is the market. It's like an ETF, isn't it? Like mm. an ele- 
How do you say that again? I mean, exchange, exchange trading tra- fund. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exchange <laughs> exchange trading fund, right? <laughs> it, it's you know, it's a great way to invest in the in the share market. You know, because it's a low impact in the sense you don't have to research too much. The market goes up, your sh- your shares will go up. The market goes down, your shares go down, and that is what a lot of people seem to think. Everything performs the same way in the property market, but it doesn't. You can actually pick assets that do a hell of a lot better than the rest of the market, mm. but it comes down to the asset selection. Yeah, sure. And actually you touched on a really important point just before as well, because you generally find that those properties at the very top end is a thinner market. Yes. So they're more mm. volatile, whereas yeah. uh, closer to the median price, um, where there tends to be home buyers in good times and bad times and yeah. recessions. Um, yeah. It's a it's a more consistent and less volatile journey through the cycle. Yeah. And it's the same uh, going out to some regions as well, that uh, at various points there might not be many buyers. It becomes very liquid. Mm. Um, but there's... You know the median price properties. So I guess in in Sydney now the median still is quite high, but the types of property that people on two incomes can afford, um, you know, those are less volatile through the cycle. Yeah, and the hard thing's been how to get those properties right for the last five years. But you know, and you know, once you're I guess educated, and you know, and you may potentially be using a buyer's agent. You know, in Sydney a lot of people use auctions, and auctions the way it is, but in Brisbane they don't. And I always remember you bought for a client, you know, a few years ago in Sydney at an auction and some of their feedback, I don't even know if I've ever told you this, but some of the feedback was that Pete won us that, you know, because um, your approach to it and you basically scared the hell out of all the other buyers there and um, you really got the deal done and, you know, it was, and, and they were, they were there at the auction, what should do it. I mean, in, in what are some of the, te- the negotiation? Because in Brisbane, you don't really do auctions as much, Yeah. What are some of the negotiation techniques that you use with the agents up there to, to kind of to buy the properties up there? Yeah, well, there, there are still um, in the blue chip suburbs of Brisbane. We still do have auctions, um, but they they you you would you would adopt a different tactic depending on the state of the market. Because in Brisbane, it's very common for properties to pass in, and then a negotiation happens after the hammer is not fallen. Um, in Sydney, at the peak of the market, there was something like ninety percent of properties mm. that went through to auction were selling. So, mm. you, you, uh, I mean, there's, there's a limit to how much you can do in that red hot market yeah. environment. Um, you Try know, and buy it prior. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, you you don't basically want to get into that situation where you have you're bidding against five or six other people particularly emotional first home buyers. Um, and the scary so- thing was 90% of property were going to auction. So 90% of 90% was getting sold mm. at a ridiculous price. Yeah, that's it. And in um, three weeks. Yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, in, in that environment, you can try all the tactics you like. You can slow down the bidding, you mm. can bid aggressively. But if the, if someone's <laughs> prepared to pay more than you, there's a limit to how yep. much you can do. Yeah. I think if you know the most important thing is to know your strategy and know what know your budget mm-hmm. um, because unless you've actually got a fixed number because the, the last thing you want to do as a as a buyer's agent is turn up with two nervous clients who start whispering in your ear because as soon as you do that you've given yep. away the <laughs> yep. the facade of um, <laughs> uh, being cool calm and collected which is of course what you it's a much easier thing to do as a buyer's agent mm. because you're divorced from the process, but um, <laughs> or at least emotionally divorced from the process. Yeah, we interviewed Damien Cooley back in episode two, and if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, you have to go back. You would never want to bid at auction without listening to the insights that Damien gives. So he was talking about a buyer's agent shouldn't have their clients with them, mm. and, um, and he gave me a little tip, uh, which was he looks at a buyer's agent, if the buyer's agent hasn't talked to their client, 
that he believes that there must be more money in it. And I said, well, that's interesting because I get set limits before we go to auction. If, even if my client's there, I've already stress tested their limits. So we're not going to be turning to the middle auction going, do you want to get a bit more? Um, I find that really, really, really unprofessional. But um, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm, we're changing our tactics just in terms of how we refer to our clients during the auction just to, to make sure we cover that off in future. <laughs> mm. But, yeah, I mean, you don't want, to, you don't want a client um, panicking and trying to give you more money in the middle auction, it's horrendous. Yeah. Yeah, and you see other couples doing it. You, once you see people bickering or uh, whispering mm. to each other, you've got a fair sense that they're either yeah, bingo. close to their limit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Time for a 10K bid. <laughs> and so, you know, just so our listeners understanding about buying in Brisbane, so what is the process that at the moment with, you know, good property, you know, generally speaking in Sydney you have to sign with like a 66W, you know, if it's a good property, we're not going to sell this unless it's an unconditional offer, um, no pulling out. But in Brisbane, you know, it's a bit crazy. You know, you can do a building and pest after and they give you finance clauses. And Yeah, I mean, mm. you, you, there are different ways to approach it. Most often you would make a conditional offer and give yourself a couple of weeks to uh, secure the finance, to do building and pest inspection, any searches you want to do. Uh, so it's a much nicer environment yep. for the buyer. Um, compare that to... Um, well, the, the the London market, for example, is a nightmare for a buyer's agent because the process oh. from start to finish can be months and months. And oh. it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. because nobody expects the, the uh, process to happen quickly and therefore it, it doesn't. So even the solicitors proofing the contract, I mean, that can take weeks because nobody's expecting anything to happen. But, it, um, but the deal can fall over because somebody in the in the chain, yes. you know, their deal falls over, their finance falls over. Yeah, so for investors, we try to find properties that aren't in chains, chain-free, because, you know, the, the whole process of having somebody, three properties down the chain, uh, make it all fall over, it's just too painful. Um, oh, I think amazed it, that, that it can still function like that. It's a stupid yeah. system and it needs tearing up. But mm. uh, in Brisbane, it's comparatively nice. So you have 30-day settlements. Um, you have a nice period for making conditional offers, particularly when the market's not red hot because mm. you're not yeah. bidding against loads of other people. Um, we often try to find stuff that's pre-market or off-market as well um, because then you get a clear run and you're not competing against the whole market. And that's generally been a bit more common in Brisbane than say Sydney, Melbourne in the last few years because off market. Yeah. Mm. Just because I mean if you had a good property in Sydney and Melbourne for the last five years, you know it's going to sell at auction. Mm. So mm. you know you're going to get more competition. So, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to want to sell that unless you've had a divorce and you don't want to tell anyone. Um we're the, seeing a lot more yeah. off market now. And I can yeah, tell yeah. you in 2017 only four percent of what we bought was off market. Now Having said that, we saw a hell of a lot more off-market than that, but it's quite often overpriced. Yeah. But now we're actually seeing that more of the quality property, rather than going to auction, rather than being exposed to the market, the vendors are a lot more cautious. And so we're actually getting access to quite a bit more off-market that's quality. And, and I'm sure our stats will be going up in terms of the proportion that we're buying. Yeah, it's a more balanced market, mm. I guess. And in Brisbane, you, there's a number of different reasons why people sell off-market. I mean, particularly those... Um, the um the sixteen and twenty four perch blocks that can be split. You often find that um and, and just for the listeners, sixteen twenty four perch oh, is sorry, converted so, to how many square meters? Well, thirty two. The thirty <laughs> the thirty two perch block is eight hundred and ten square meters. Right. So yes. that um mm. so when you see these sort of very weird not rounded numbers, so mm. four hundred and five square meters. That's the um that's the standard blocks sort of small lot size in Brisbane now. But if you're wondering why, it goes back to the imperial mm. system. Uh, but those eight, ten square meter blocks, um, you quite often find that you've got very de 
sort of decrepit post-war housing. Yeah. There's people that have lived there for 50 years. They don't really want to go through the process of having an open home, having people traipsing through their house every weekend um, with their stuff everywhere. Uh, those are very often sold pre-market or off-market. And who and who buys them is mainly your builders and or people willing to put three townhouses or, you know, because you're big 800 square or duplex or, you know, because it's a perfect... Yeah, splitter blocks, aren't yeah, they? That's so, it. So, and they're very often on two lots anyway. So you don't yeah, have to even yeah. subdivide them. Mm. You just remove the house. Uh, you can often even sell the house. It's a very yeah, Queensland house, thing. Yeah. Um, I've had some <laughs> English clients sort of asking, "What do you mean you sell the house?" It's, it's a very uh, Queensland specific <laughs> it's idea. It's hilarious, isn't it? There's actually you drive down from the Sunshine Coast down to Brisbane and up on the on the ridge on the side. Yeah, Queensland house yeah, removers. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's right. A big, it's a showroom of old houses. You can go and get a truck and take it home. Yeah, <laughs> or you can you can even buy buy them and, and move them there if that's what you want to do. But, um, yeah, for that type of property, they love having buyer's agents through because you're sensitive to their situation. Mm. Uh, if you've got a pre-approved buyer, then even better. Um, and those um, those are the, have become very popular. In 2014 in Brisbane, after the city plan changed, the big thing was buying low-medium resi zoning, so um, where you could remove the house and put four townhouses on, yep. but that market has really got flooded, mm. uh, sort of oversupplied. So now the, the big thing now is uh, the 810 splitter blocks um, where you can remove the post-war house and put two two new sort of four-bedroom, two-bathroom houses on. Um, and if you can do that in the right suburbs, you know, the, the price the prices are growing too. So it, it sort of it puts a bit more fat in the, uh, in the equation. So those, those zoning changes must have been a bit of a windfall for a lot of those owners sitting on big blocks of land. Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, I think um, surprisingly, I mean, so, some of the suburbs like, for example, uh, Maruka or somewhere like that, a lot of low-medium density zoning, uh, 607 square metre blocks where you could put four townhouses on, you could still pick those up, um, you know, 600, mid-600s. Um, so that by comparison to elsewhere in in sort of more developed cities, it's relatively good um, entry price. But yeah, for a site that's like one hundred fifty grand for a site, roughly. Yeah, that's yeah, it. That's... Um, now the the house that's on there, if you're looking to rent it out, you might get I guess four eighty a week. Um, you know, so you, there might be a cash flow shortfall until you develop. But those were very very popular for a couple of years. Mm. Um, but you talked about the family demographic. Uh, one of the things you really notice with those old. Um, Post wars, if you've got a three bedroom, one bathroom house, very hard to rent those out because mm. families just don't want one bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's something you really notice. How is did that... we survive? You know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. In Queensland, up. Dunny's out the back in <laughs> the uh, in the back garden, but um, yeah, that that's not so common these days. <laughs> yeah, there's one little f- final thing that I was um, just around Brisbane. Our clients trying to buy up there at the moment, and um, you know, there's there's the hills in Brisbane that have obviously this the view of the city and things like that because it's quite a flat city and then you've got this kind of hill where there's actually scarcity along that hill because you get all the city views and, you know, but it's nowhere, it's not actually, you know, in the 5K ring, you know. It's Is that Ma- Paddington? Ma- Mount Gravatt and, you know, all those areas. Yeah, so, I mean, there are some quite hilly suburbs even uh, closer in. Mm. I think uh, the, the thing, I mean, even suburbs like on the north side, like Kedron and places like that, yep. which if you went back far enough in time you had the tannery had a bad smell it was sort of wasn't that highly thought of but now of course you've got city views that's the mm-hmm. big thing um i think one thing to bear in mind with those blocks is if you're going to develop on them yeah exactly right. a, there's an extra cost to that oh, and actually um surprising thing that um we've found uh, the thing is with uh, the the properties that get the really sort of 
um, premium price, they're often on flat blocks. Yeah. Because yeah. think about who your end buyer yeah. is. It's probably, uh, it's the wife that's going to have the, the final decision. If she's got a flat back garden where she can see the kids, it's yeah. fully fenced. Mm. Uh, if there's a pool, it's got to be compliant and safe. Yes. Um, they don't necessarily want a block where it slopes away at the back and they can't see what's going on. Um, so c- city views are great, uh, but if you're looking to develop, um, you've got to think about lots of extra things, drainage and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's more parts to that equation. And in that scenario, the, what the client wants is only very few houses because they actually want the view and things like that. And, you know, they've literally ruled out potentially doing any development because, you know, it's just very scary when they've looked at the plans and the options and things like that. So, you know, they're kind of sitting and waiting and, the thing is they've been waiting for some time now because there's only so many houses with the views that are already developed that are actually to a good standard. Mm. And so it's, um, you know, and that's the thing is how long do you wait, I guess, till Yeah, I mean, saying that we bought a couple in uh, on Tenerife Hill last year for clients. I mean, spectacular city views. Yeah. Um, but really... When you when it when you sort of narrow it down, you're talking about two or three streets that people want to be mm. on. Yeah. It's such a scarce commodity. Yeah, that's um, right. And yeah, there's always, I mean, always going to be demand for that type of yeah. property. And are you buying sort of for owner occupiers or for investors there? Uh, mostly for investors. Mm. Um, I don't really in Brisbane. It's just me. It's a one to one service. So I don't have a great deal of capacity for buying for home buyers, mm. uh, particularly because I do spend some time in London. Um, so I often refer that work elsewhere. I do buy for some home buyers, but uh, yeah, it depends on their brief. Um, it's a different exercise, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And yeah. it, you know, we, uh, we've got some downsizes, for example, where you've got a fair idea of what they want. Uh, that type of engagement I can handle. Uh, but where you've got a very large search area and a lot of conflicting criteria, that's probably better suited to an agency with a few, yeah. a team, a team yeah. of agents. But just for their listeners here, you're buying for investors, but you're probably buying homes that home buyers would probably want. So it's yes, um, yes. yeah. So you know, you're not buying investor stock that's suitable to investors. You're buying, you know, homes that are suitable to homeowners, but investors yeah. are buying it. So that's a, a big difference. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Now, Pete, can you please help our listeners out here? Can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. How long have you got? Have you got, we must have probably another hour of uh, podcast, but uh, <laughs> <Here we go. laughs> yeah, I've seen some pretty interesting, well, you said you would, you've seen it all yourselves over the years. People do all kinds of dumb things. Uh, recently went to an auction uh, where there are a few um, a few people were actually bidding at, um, unusually for Brisbane, sold under the hammer, really nice property with development potential. And the, the buyer actually couldn't complete on the property, couldn't finance it. Um, so put, somebody's gone to the to the um, the effort of registering, bidding at an auction, and didn't have the finance to actually complete. So mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know for certain, but I expect they lost a deposit. Um, yeah. and, and that's not 0.25, that's 10% most likely? Yes, in Brisbane it would be, So yeah. unless they negotiated otherwise. But you see all kinds of stuff. It's, it's usually most rela- – you see a lot of buyer's remorse, you know, people – you know, property is in a liquid asset class. You don't buy yes. and sell. Mm. And they, they do very little due diligence before they buy. And then in the week after, they discover, well, actually the zoning's not what they thought or there are termites or the property next door is going to be developed. Um, 
you know, or it's a flood risk or, you know, it's amazing what people don't uh, research until after the event. Oh, it's, that astounds me. It never, never fails to astound me the amount of people that are so cavalier about buying property. I mean, if you buy the wrong property, you will live in regret mm. for some time and because getting out of it again is A, going to be costly, as we say, costly and stressful. Relationships can break down after buying the wrong property. Yeah, you talked about the psychology of money there. I think because uh, borrowed money, because you haven't had to go out and earn that money, mm. then it feels as though it's free somehow. Uh, but you should always think whenever you take out a mortgage, can I actually repay this? If I have to repay this mortgage, can I do it? And I don't think um, in recent years with the prevalence of interest-only lending, I think a lot of people have just mm. simply assumed that they never will pay down their debt um, and maybe they should have. Strange way of renting really, isn't it? Instead of paying a landlord, you're just paying the bank rent. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Rent money's dead money and, you know, I'd rather have a mortgage and an asset going up and... You know, that's all great if, you know. You got, rabbit, you got rabbities around that. You're not saying that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, exactly. It's um, quote, quote. a bit tongue, tongue in cheek. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, generally speaking, you know, your rent's not what your mortgage is going to be. You don't have to pay rates. You don't have to mm. pay maintenance. You don't have to pay. You can move out. Yeah. <laughs> you can leave it behind. That's it. You know, yeah, exactly. If your family gets older or you want to swap schools or you yeah. want to move down the south, you know, renting gives you all these options and, um, you know, and it probably is financially better for you than owning a house, you know, yeah. if you're only going to stay somewhere short term. But if it does give you a lot of lifestyle benefits and then you do stay there for 20 years, well, your mortgage isn't going up every year. Your repayment isn't, you know. Well, my but, interest rate's going to go up one day. Well, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> there's that way. But, I mean, generally speaking, if you are renting yeah. and you're wanting to rent in, you know, good family suburbs, you know, renting's great, but if you want to rent a nice family house in the inner rings of Sydney, um, you know, chances are your landlord's going to keep putting your rent up you know, every year and well, that's the challenge. Pros and cons. I'm definitely advocate for living in my own my own home personally. Yeah. Yep. So Pete, well, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation because I know I have. <laughs> um I want to make sure that we're we're gonna put in the show notes, we'll put the link to your blog. And I highly recommend listeners uh, read it. Every day is something unique and quite often a bit left field. <laughs> this, your brain works mysterious ways. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of interesting things there. And it does, it, what I like about it is it, it, it pulls in from all sources. And, and I just think that there's often a very interesting take on, on what is going on. Um, we'll also, we'll put a link to RiskWise in there. And I'm not sure if you're, the report you're talking, I've read about that report. I haven't read the report, but I've certainly read some of the PR around it. Uh, is the report available? Do you know? Uh, it's available for purchase, yeah. that report. But um, as you said, there are, there are some good media summaries of mm. some of the findings. Um, there's a is it expensive media to release. purchase? Um, it depends on your, um, depends on your means. It's, it's, I suppose it's mainly targeted at, um, the corporate Got market, okay. um, yeah. uh, the, cause it, that's the, uh, it's a macro report, you know, yeah. it's okay. looking at policy. Um, but we got a lot of interest in, in that report mm. from treasury and the opposition, um, and <laughs> you know, various other, um, various other people in high places. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting times ahead, I think with an election coming up. Just well, on that while you're there, what's that? You know, have you spoke to much of the the opposition around it, or have they, you know, are they starting to actually think about things a little bit more clearly around negative gearing? 
Um, I think um, it, uh, I don't know what they're discussing internally. I think um, you know. La- I think Labour's. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not a political person. I think Labour's argument would be that what they're looking to do in the housing market is a multi generational change. So if there's some short term pain, then that's worth doing. That's their their outlook. Um, I you know I tend to. I mean, I work in real estate, so I guess I'm a vested interest from that perspective. I. I personally think that a better strategy might be if you're going to look at making changes to do them gradually. You know, it's a long time mm-hmm. since I did my tax exams, but that's one thing that I learned uh, back in accounting school 25 years ago. It, you know, the tax uh, the tax system is not perfect, but but it's evolved over such a long period yeah. of time. It's easier to make yeah. incremental changes than great big sweeping shifts. So in that way, maybe put a limit on negative gearing and then slowly over time reduce that limit. You or know. the capital gains tax. You know, yeah. you don't have to just go in there hard uh, on day one. You could wind back. The, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, if if that's what you were looking to do, uh, then you can make an incremental change. But uh, I think um, what hasn't really been thought through, and um, you already mentioned it, is what happens with the, you're you're going to create a, a real two tier market yeah. between new and established apartments in particular. Yeah. And um, I think you might find that actually there's some um, sort of unintended outcomes from that. And one of those outcomes, I believe, will be it'll push people away from building an investment portfolio to prioritizing home ownership. And so instead of owning, you know, a smaller house and three investment properties, I'm just going to own a really nice house that's growing for me mm. tax-free. And then that's going to then just completely destroy what people wanted anyway was a better, fairer housing market for families. And mm. um, so, you know, it, it's, you know, that's, it's kind of, yeah, it's going to flip mm. it the other way, I think. What worries me is it just going to be, more spookers out there pushing new stock. Oh, there will be, no question. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's yeah, a, that's an true. area that should have been tightened up years mm. ago. And Pippa has campaigned for this for yeah. so many years and uh, it's never been touched properly. Yeah, that's what they should be looking at. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Pete. And uh, we hope to get you back because I know there's a lot of elephants we haven't even toyed with today. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, following on from a lot of the things that Pete was saying, it became loud and clear that owner-occupier demand is what underpins solid capital growth performers. So for investors, when you're looking to buy property, steer clear of investor stock, right? Investment grade is one thing, investor stock is quite another. Pete talked a lot about the new developments in particular in Queensland that are specifically developed and targeted at interstate investors. Now that's dangerous, dangerous stuff and that's the sort of investor stock I'm talking about. And he did talk about where the the ongoing or sustainable growth areas are where families and owner-occupiers want to live. And that is a fundamental principle for capital growth in property. Now, we interviewed John Linderman. He's a researcher and he did say that booms are created by investors. And so you've got to be aware that investors will push prices up. But what actually keeps the flame burning under any area are the owner occupiers, the local demand. We're seeing it at the moment in Sydney that in the inner areas, now that the market has slowed down, supply has also slowed down. 
And that means that people aren't forced to actually sell their properties when they don't think they're going to get their prices. However, in the outer areas of Sydney, the supply is increasing. And that is because a lot of investors have bought that stock. And those investors are trying to get out of the market. And there aren't enough local owner occupiers who can afford to and want to buy that stock. So that is one of the reasons why those areas are so risky. In fact, Pete actually wrote a blog about that very recently and we'll include the link to it in the show notes. Tune in for our next episode when we interview Amanda Farmer. Now, she is a strata specialist lawyer. She also is the host of her own podcast called Your Strata Property, an excellent podcast. What Amanda says about buying into brand new buildings and off-the-plan properties will make your hair curl, okay? You must listen to this episode, particularly if you are interested in buying brand new or off-the-plan. As long as you've got hair. Yeah, as long as you get hair. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Be aware. Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.